Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. Good day, everybody. Have you ever noticed that a certain kind of positive person are either among the most annoying or among the most creepy people you're ever going to meet? The reason for that is that to call them simply positive is a bit of a misnomer. The positivity is something more of a self-deception. You look at people of this sort of ilk, and they always want to believe the best things. Nothing they ever say can be anything but positive. Maybe they're the sort that endlessly talk about the hope of Jesus Christ or something like that. Of course, on that point that I would agree with them about Jesus, but uh, not necessarily their attitude. See, I opened up by talking about the fact that there's a certain kind of positive person who's either annoying or creepy, but the fact of the matter is we also, all of us probably, know people who are positive, but you just like them. That is to say, they typically are happy, they tend to be fairly friendly, even perhaps charismatic, I myself myself am one of those. They generally... seem to have a positive view of the world, or if you actually talk to them, they might not, but when it comes to their everyday interactions, they don't seem to have negative experiences on a very regular basis at all. And you could call both categories optimistic, but yet there is one that is either creepy or extremely annoying, and another that is actually likable. What's the difference? The creepy positive people, if you think about them, they resemble a certain other kind of person. And what is that other kind of person? The other sort is, frankly, high. What I mean by that is drunk, high like on drugs. The real issue with them, and the part of them that makes it creepy, is the fact that they do not seem to have any anchoring in reality. With the people who preach endlessly about something like the hope of Jesus Christ, or perhaps the uh, salvation that will get through the government, or whatever, taxation, welfare, I don't really care. The real issue is that they are almost their own marionette. They have become, or sorry, they manage themselves in the sense of never allowing themselves to really be negative or to think anything negative about the world or to admit that there are certain dark things going on around them in the actual world. Another sort of similarly annoying person, not usually so creepy, but certainly annoying, are the exception people. The sort that whenever you mention any kind of general rule, or you display any genuine confidence in yourself or your environment, they have some sort of a response. They have some sort of a alternative perspective to give you. 
They seem to ignore the very fact that when you're speaking of a general rule, you understand as any rational human being that exceptions exist. You talk, for example, about the fact that the vast majority of uh, a certain people group in this nation contribute a disproportionate amount to the crime in said nation. And they say, oh, but I know one of these people who's a very, very good person and extremely responsible. Yes, we know that's what a general rule means. That's why we have the phrase, the exception that proves the rule. And the reason why such people are annoying, once again, is be, is the same reason as the, uh, well, kind of drugged up positivity person. They refuse to acknowledge that anything bad ever happens in the world, and they think that they can trump an argument about general reality by bringing up the occasional exceptions to the general rule. One's own experience, if it is in the minority, does not trump a general reality as long as the general reality is accurate. Anyway, what's the big idea that I'm kind of going on about here? The general idea is what many have called hopium. I don't think it's quite as uh, common a word as copium. They're both rather similar, but hopium, in my opinion, is worse. When people talk about copium, the meme or colloquialism, whatever you want to call it, uh, typically is acknowledged as a sort of sarcastic, ex or sorry, if you're talking about copium, you're probably talking about yourself because you are knowingly trying to focus on the positive aspects of an event or circumstance to try to make yourself feel better, or you're pointing out that somebody else is doing the same thing. And that might all be in good fun, and honestly, though it is a bit of a jab, it might wake the person up to the fact that, yeah, you know, I'm I'm really just trying to make this pile of poo look like a bed of flowers. But hopium, hopium is far worse. Hopium connects, generally speaking, to an overall perspective, a belief, a paradigm about the world. And it makes one or a group of people cling to a mere idea, as if it trumps every reality that hits them in the face. We've all done it. I've certainly been there, too. It's much more attractive than the real world to believe that this certain government program or this kind of preaching or whatever is going to solve all the problems in the world, rather than admit the fact that the world can sometimes be a terrible place. Or that this person may be beyond recovery. Or something like that. I remember one time when I was part of a church, and I don't necessarily think that this was all wrong, but at a certain extreme it can be, there was a missionary who had died. Uh, tragically, I believe he was in some sort of a car accident in a third world country, and my church was connected to this particular missionary, and I was working on staff there at the time. And there was a great deal of lament and sorrow, as is understandable. He was a very likable person. But then I started hearing reports of people trying to pray even for his resurrection. 
from halfway across the world. Now, I, as a Christian, believe that such things are absolutely possible, but I questioned the rationality and the health of going so far as to pray for the resurrection of somebody halfway across the world. Sometimes the die is cast. And while, yes, I believe that to this day people occasionally do come back to life, and I believe that it is miraculous, but clinging to this idea, to me, seemed like, uh, it's hard to say, a sort of desperation. This refusal to accept the fact that somebody who was doing good work in the world, who was very well liked by a lot of people in that church, could be dead dead, as in he's probably gone to heaven and he's not coming back. His work was interrupted by a tragedy. It was not going to continue, at least as far as he was concerned. He's gone. And the fact that people refuse so hard, with such sternness to believe this, to believe that it could possibly be true, and wanted to even pray for him to come back spontaneously from the dead by a miracle of God, again, it just spoke to me of desperation. A desperation for something which they had no right to think was the plan of God at all. I spoke a little bit earlier about the fact that there is a similar category among the drugged-up positivity people. Uh, shall we call them the hopium addicted? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Another version of the hopium addicted is the exception people. I also mentioned those who tend to reject any statements of positivity, and th these are connected, by the way, positivity in the sense of confidence, but I'll get to that in a bit. Hopefully I'll remember. Though the exception people, um, I learned from one of my teachers recently why these are connected, why these are the hopium people, and it started connecting me to the fact that this is a very common Christian phenomenon as well, or churchian because, of course, this particular teacher has a great deal of Christian listeners. He runs a podcast. Anyway, much like myself. The exception people bring up the exceptions in every particular case because of one of two reasons. One is that they want to be right. You make a general statement and maybe even cite evidence or provide evidence if it's online, and they give you an exception. Why? Because you're pricking their ego. Because now you bringing up this series of facts takes the oxygen out of the room. You have now become the focus because you're the one making the statements. So they, having their egos pricked and beginning to get anxious, bring up an exception simply because they don't want to be left in the dust. And that's just arrogance and egotism. But the other reason why people bring up the exceptions is the one that, again, I learned from this other teacher. It's the fact that people want to be that exception. So you might be making a general statement about perhaps a sex, perhaps a race, perhaps a, a class, middle class, upper class, lower class. And they, knowing that either they themselves or their community or their family is a member of that particular group, 
So they bring up the exception because they are getting nervous about the fact that you are pegging them right to the wall. You just said something that applies either to them or in some sort of adjacency to them. So they bring up the exception because they want the exception to be their reality. They are nervous to accept the fact that your general statement might very well apply either again to them or to their environment. There's probably already been a number of people who've listened to me over and over again bring up the abuses of parenthood, primarily because it's something that is not spoken enough about, and they want immediately to believe that they're like me, because I've also mentioned that I am one of those exceptions and I mean it. They don't want to accept the fact that they might in fact be in a reality where their parents abuse them. So they want to be an exception. If we could have a debate online, which may come someday if this podcast ever gains some real traction, and by the way, I'm fine that it hasn't yet, I'm just doing my thing, they would come at me with, oh, but when my parents did this, it was because they had this loving intention and blah, 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 when in fact it was only their excuse saying that they had some loving or well-meaning intention to abuse them. Now, I'm not saying that this is always going to be the case. I'm just giving giving an example of something that I've heard a number of times already. They want to reject the reality and submit their own in its place because they do not want to face the evil. Now, here's another example of something like this. Say you go to church and you're hearing a sermon on confidence. You might hear a variety, a couple of different things. One is the fairly obvious one that uh, if you want to find confidence, well, that's kind of a misnomer because our only confidence should be in the Lord and we need to rely on him and lean on him and so on and so forth. Another version of what you might hear is the general feel-good, you have to seek after the Lord and find your confidence in the Lord, kind of similar to the other one. And if you pray, and if you seek the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and do your spiritual disciplines every day, then you will find the truth of your positive perspective that comes from the Lord because God has a loving perspective of us that is positive and good and wonderful. And don't pay attention to all of those negative feelings that keep you depressed and make you doubt yourself and so on. Just lean in on God and the Holy Spirit and he will fill you with the good things and the good feelings and so on and so forth. In the former case, well, that's just kind of an example of what you might hear in that sermon. The latter case, well, you might just leave with no practical idea of what the heck you're supposed to do with a sense of a lack of confidence, nor with any positive perspective about negative, or sorry, about the use of negative emotions and why they arise in us for any practical cause or real meaning. And you just kind of have a sense of positivity and good feelings, and I should read my Bible and pray more, or something like that. In such a case, I would argue that you just got a mother load of hopium. 
And what it does is it keeps you essentially complacent. Do you begin to ask any questions about why you might legitimately have some negative emotions, some lack of confidence, feelings, and possibly depression? Do you have any instruction about how you might go about generating real confidence and self-assurance? The knowledge that you have the capacity of, as I've talked about in previous episodes, to do something practical and real in your life. That perhaps you're somebody like me who tries to help people and you actually have accomplished that. And you can state it in your record. Or maybe you're an ex excellent, excellent plumber and you have helped people repair their plumbing in some of the worst situations. Or maybe you're a really good piano player and you've played in symphonies or at least in recitals and you've won awards. Confidence is based on our ability to do things. I was just talking to a friend of mine the other day and I mentioned that our, con our assurance of confidence and self-assurance should be about as foundational and practical as two our confidence that 2 plus 2 equals 4. It should be that simple. And about emotions, just briefly, if we have a lack of confidence more based on a sense of doubt and depression and so on, all that might have to do, once again, with a source in abuse and how we have been, treat been treated wrongly. And those negative emotions need to be elevated in a sense because we need to pay attention, find their source, and deal with it. Are we given any of that in the Hopium Sermon? No. What we're given is a bunch of spiritual gobbledygook, a lot of positivity phrases like God has a positive perspective of you because he loves you and so on, and we're sent on our merry way without anything to do, provided we have any legitimate problem in this area, it doesn't help us at all. And the positive feeling drains in probably about a day or two, and, well, we continue with our struggles. The problem with hopium is that it leaves us complacent. We aren't given any reality. We aren't given any instruction. We aren't given any help. We're just given positive perspective. Things are nice and good. Go on your merry way. Or if it's political hopium, you have the welfare state, and the, the politicians are out there to do you good, and their policies and their bureaucracies are going to help us, and we don't have to deal with anything ourselves. All you have to do is vote right. And if you vote in the ballot box and you vote for the politicians to have the resources that they need to help us, you don't need to go out there and dig or fill potholes or do any of these things because the government will take care of it for you. It fosters complacency. Another version among the Christians, if you believe the right things and preach the right things and have the right doctrines, and I have seen this, by the way, in, in actual Christian lives or perhaps more appropriately churchian lives, if you have the right doctrines, then things are pretty much just going to work out. You have the right faith, you pray the right things, and the people who are having problems in your life or maybe sinning, maybe even abusing you, well, they'll just turn around and all will be fine. 
as if we don't ever have to face evil. We don't ever have to confront those who abuse us. All we have to do is understand the right theological perspective and everything will just organize itself automatically, miraculously, without any responsibility on our end. The reality of hopium, particularly for the Christian, is that it brings us back to bondage to sin. See, the same hopium that can apply falsely to other people in our lives who are having problems, it can also apply to ourselves. I don't have to deal with the problems in my heart. We already just went through this a little bit earlier. Because I just have to understand the right theology. I just have to pray and seek the Lord. And everything will just self-organize. We don't have to be accountable. We don't have to dig up dark things. We don't have to face our abuse. Neither our abusers. We just have to understand the truth. We just have to understand what the Holy Spirit does. Whereas in the Bible, as I have talked about in previous podcasts, we have Jesus specifically telling us that we need to face those who are doing wrong and confront them. That we need to root out the things in our lives that are wrong and deal with them. We do, in fact, need to be responsible Now, yes, there is room for grace. We don't need necessarily to sort ourselves out all at once and be perfect, otherwise we're doomed. That's not the point. But the truth is somewhere between complacency and legalism. I could quote Paul. Should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Certainly not. He argues against the idea of being complacent simply because grace should abound or because grace is available to us. We should be aware of our problems and deal with them. We shouldn't just give ourselves permission to do whatever we feel is right. To live a good life, while it is not that which saves us and it is not that which is at the center of Christian life, is nevertheless important. It is something that we should do. So going back to what I was saying, hopium brings us back to bondage or into bondage to sin. On the one end, because if we believe in it, we go right back to, should we go on not caring a lick about what's wrong in our lives because grace abounds? Well, no, but that is what hopium will do. Hopium essentially convinces us that completely unconnected matters of just believing the right things or doing some spiritual duty is going to take care of the darkness in our own hearts or the wrongness or the complete absence of reality as far as our paradigms and perspectives are concerned. We maintain a bondage to sin and a bondage to, frankly, insanity because we think that a spiritual doctrine is going to save us from it all. And then when it comes to other people, if we are in relationships with people who are abusive and then cling to hopium, 
what that results in is this idea that God is just going to magically deal with the problems in the lives of those around us because reasons, because spiritual doctrine, because hopium, and we can maintain those relationships without having to confront them with their evil. We don't have to face them with what they have done to us directly because God's just going to magically deal with them. What this also does is it ignores the doctrine, or sorry, it ignores the dignity of other people's free will. A lot of people who cling to hopium will also say things like, well, maybe this, maybe this Christian couldn't reach this corrupt individual, but somebody else might. Or maybe this method didn't work for such and such a person, but they just need the right approach given this argument, that if that kind of thing were true, then Jesus should have converted every Pharisee, every arrogant spiritual or, uh, scriptural scholar that he ever ran across. But what we actually see is that Jesus rejects them. Jesus, of all people throughout all history, had to have had the best approach to convicting people for their sin than anybody else ever. Did everybody convert? Did everybody who encountered Jesus and talked to him believe in him? We know that's not true. We know that is not the case. Now, we don't know, for example, whether or not to say the rich young ruler who walked away from Jesus eventually turned around and accepted him. Some people think that that was Luke himself, the writer of the fourth gospel. Sorry, third. But that's rather besides the point. We know that there were plenty of Pharisees who continued well after Jesus' death, hating not only Jesus and everything that he did, but hating his apostles also. So back to the main point, if anybody was going to have the right approach to convert people to Christianity, it was Jesus, and that didn't happen. So this idea that people are going to eventually be reached as long as they have the right approach or the right person or whatever it might be is arrogant, insulting to those who have tried to minister to bad and corrupt people, and it disrespects the free will of the corrupt person. See, the real secret here, or the real mystery, if you will, is the fact that the corrupt person chooses it. They would rather have their ill-gotten gains or their power or their manipulation of other people rather than being humble, rather than admitting that they have done wrong, rather than accepting that they could be loved if only they would drop, well, admit to and drop their wicked ways. Now that, by the way, is very understandable if you simply look at it amorally. There's a whole lot of gains and a whole lot of props, a whole lot of reputation, a lot of nice things to be gained through corruption, through being disingenuous, through holding power over other people and abusing them. It's not anything that I'm interested in, but I can understand that people find it very hard to let go of. 
they would essentially, in their own minds, not only have to start from square one, but to give up their very image of themselves, their entire lives, in a sense, in order to admit that they are wrong. If that is what they choose, well, as far as we see from Jesus' own actions and instruction, then they should be allowed to keep it. Jesus himself, when telling us what we should do in confronting people in the church who do wrong, tells us first to face them face to face. If they do not listen, bring a few witnesses. I know, again, I'm rehashing old territory as far as the podcast is concerned, but we'll continue. Then if they still don't listen, you bring the entire church. If they still don't listen, you scorn them. Treat them as if they are a tax collector and a pagan, which to a Jew would have meant scorn them, treat them with contempt. And as Paul would add, and does add in his own epistles, let Satan have his way with him, and he may yet repent. See, Jesus does tell us to love our enemies. The question is, how do we do that loving? Well, the most loving thing to do towards those who are unrepentantly doing wrong is to let Satan have his way with him, so him or her, as the case may be, so that they may yet then repent. What they need is to learn by consequences because they're clearly not going to learn through argument. That is, through your confrontation of them. The most loving thing you can do is to try still, to the best of your ability, to guide them towards what is good, which is, in this case, for them to repent of their wickedness. But if you are taking the hopium, you're never going to do that. See, the real, uh, again, an even deeper problem with hopium is that you do not love bad people well enough. See, you think that you love bad people because you continue to have hope for them. But that hope disrespects their free will, dishonors the reality of abuse, ignores the evil of those who are corrupt, it does not act justly, and it doesn't even love mercy. Mercy, as I've said very recently, applies when people repent of their sin. It does not act justly, of course, because it doesn't administer consequences upon those who have done wrong. Hopium is well named because hopium separates us from reality itself. It refuses to admit what is right in front of our faces because we are literally doped up on something like a drug. We allow ourselves to deny the reality that is right in front of us, whether it be of our own corruption or of the corruption of people around us, because we would rather feel good, just like somebody who is addicted to a drug. To me, hopium, as I have already said, is the method by which we bind ourselves to sin again, even after becoming strongly, perhaps, Christian. And it takes away the teeth of good people to deal 
with the wrongs of the world. It is a thing like a conspiracy theory, when that conspiracy theory is absolutely and knowingly wrong. We know that a conspiracy theory is not a conspiracy theory when the powers that be try to silence it. Why is that? Because if that conspiracy theory were revealed to be an actual conspiracy, well, it would hurt the powers that be. But if the conspiracy is something like, for example, that the Earth is actually flat, well, you hear about that more and more every day, at least I know that I am. Why do you hear about it? Why does it seem to be allowed to be free in the open air? Well, because the powers that be are not scared of it. Why would they silence something that simply leads people towards needless arguments, irrationality, and a bunch of time wasted? If it leads us to just waste a bunch of time, well, that's good for the powers that be, the people who want to keep us subjected to their power. Yeah, it's, it's a great alliance. So, yeah, let the weeds grow freely. In the same way, if we are just addicted to hopium, well, why would that be fought by anybody who wants to do us harm? All it does is keep us arguing about whether or not people can actually be saved when they are mired in their corruption and are unrepentant. It keeps us not dealing with the problems in our own lives, so we maintain or we remain ineffective, ineffective rather, in the actual world. Why would Satan do anything to hopium? Satan loves hopium. Hopium keeps us corrupt and not dealing with corruption. If we are ineffective in the world, then whatever causes us to be ineffective in the world is the ally to evil. If, on the other hand, we abandon the drug. This leads us into the odd paradox that has been the subject of my mind lately. That paradox is the fact that we should, in fact, be skeptical about ourselves and about the world. And that skepticism leads us towards greater and greater truth. Now, at the same time, that doesn't mean we cannot be confident, but that confidence comes out of skepticism. Why? Because we're willing to judge, we're willing to evaluate, we're willing to correct. Correct problems, correct issues, correct mistakes, and correct the people around us. It is through an odd sort of you might call it pessimism. I would simply call it critique and skepticism. The critique, the critique and skepticism actually leads us in the long run towards a positive result, towards self-assurance, and towards real confidence. The problem that, we, that I brought up at the very beginning of this episode of the creepy and annoying optimist is the fact that they believe in a world that doesn't exist. 
when a perspective is clung to as the very thing that we think is going to save us, that is hopium and that is disabling. But if we are willing to look critically at the world, as I think Jesus did as well, and well, no, I'm very confident Jesus did, and see that, yes, there are dark corners of the world, there are people that refuse repentance, and there is real problems in our own, or sorry, there are real problems in our own lives. The practical and long-term result of that is, in fact, the positivity of the latter group of people I spoke about at the beginning, because they end up being happier. They end up being more successful. They end up being the kind of people that you want to be around, not because they have this hopeless and unrealistic optimism, but because in their willingness to be skeptical and to be a force of correction in their own lives and in the lives of people around them, they have become that way through the hard work of correction. So as always, I hope that gives you all a lot of good things to think about. Until next time.